But I don't, I really don't have any regrets. I really don't. I've, I've lived exactly how I've wanted to. I've tried my hardest every single time. I didn't win the matches that maybe I should have always won. Or, but I really gave it my all. So that for me is enough. Hello everybody, welcome back to the Body Serve. I'm Jonathan. I'm James. We are coming to you from Toronto. We have returned home after our, what, nine-day trip to New York City? Yes, uh, it was an amazing trip. The return trip was thankfully super easy. LaGuardia has gotten such a glow-up. Like, I cannot... Because I complain about airports a lot, I want to give LaGuardia its due This is not for how I improving. starting this show. <laughs> Are you done? Yeah, well, I guess. Okay. <laughs> I guess I have to be. He talks about transport stuff non-stop. That's the context here. I do. You should have been an urban planner. I should have. But that... It's not too that late. That train has... Uh, that ship has not yet sailed. Uh, you could yeah. if you'd like to. That train has left the station. Fulfill that Get dream. <laughs> US Open 2023, my first major tournament... Ever at my big age. Can you believe it? Yeah, especially since you grew up in upstate New York. Right. A different world, pretty much. You went last year for the first time and helped me uh, sort of know what to expect. But I have to say, like, it was an amazing experience. So cool that we got to experience this together. And I had family come along as well. I just assumed that you would find the whole thing way too overwhelming, the largesse of it, and be disgusted. That's honestly what I thought. <laughs> well, fair enough. Uh, I'm kind of a homebody, especially since COVID. So uh, a fair assumption, but this is different. This is something that I've wanted to do for a long time. And I had a, a level of tolerance I wouldn't have for other types of events. It was overwhelming. There were too many people, which we will talk about later. That didn't do anything to kind of ruin my vibe, you know? Mm. What were some of the standout experiences for you? I think walking into the grounds for the first time was very cool because I've seen people's videos kind of walking over that rickety-ass bridge over the railroad tracks from Metz Willits Point Station. We went on Friday, one of the days that was free, the last day of qualifying, just to get kind of the lay of the land. And I'm so glad I did. I got to see the site without too many people there mm -hmm. and just figure out where things were. Because on Monday, on opening day of a slam, it's absolutely chaotic. And it's just hard to see past all the people. Experiences, I don't know, there was so much. It, the We went Monday, Tuesday, Wednesday, and it, it kind of feels like a blur. It kind of feels like I didn't see all that much tennis because there's, you know, you're waiting in line to get a honeydews. You're waiting in line to get a court. There's a lot of, like, in-between tennis stuff. Or in your case, you're walking around from honeydew stand to honeydew stand asking for the frozen one and then leaving up a, a trail of... Are you fucking kidding me across the grounds? <laughs> Only to myself. <laughs> I would never say that to somebody. The Honeydew's frozen machines were broken, by and large, oh, so the first, say, the first yeah, three days. And they so, were closed for cleaning, like at McDonald's. So when I went on Thursday by myself, my last day, and I got a frozen Honeydew, so you were beside yourself in the hotel room. I could not, could not believe it. Review the Honeydew's. You didn't get to do both, but mm -hmm. the Honeydew's itself, the, the one on the rocks... Honeydews on Friday before the tournament, fantastic. 
will get you a little buzz just off one. Once the tournament got going, the taste is still there, but there is no alcohol in it. You said this to me, and that's just patently false. Really? Like, there is some alcohol, it might not be as much. I mean, for a drink that costs 22 American dollars, how do you drink like three or four and feel nary a buzz? Not even a flicker. As I pointed out to you, because you drank them over the course of nine hours. No. Mm-mm. No. False. Mm. But it tastes good. It's cute. You know, we got a number of souvenir cups out of it. A, a number. <laughs> it certainly is a number. So many that we considered like leaving some behind because it's like, how are we going to get this on the plane? I will say the frozen one is infinitely stronger than mm. the one on the rocks. Right. Like it's not even close. It also lasts longer. Even on a hot day, it doesn't melt very quickly. It's just that girl. It's wow. much better than the On the Rocks version. I'm so happy for you. So if you are still on site, try and track that down instead. That's my recommendation. Mm-hmm. Why don't I take you through my experience at the opening night session? So I'll tell you a little story and then we can talk about other things okay. at the open. We were lucky enough to get two tickets for opening night. And I have been wanting to see the first night session at the open for many years Partly ironically, because it is so ostentatious, and partly just because it would be cool to experience in person. Did not know who the singer was going to be. Could have been, what's his name? Ben Ben Platt. Platt. It could have been Diana Ross. And we got Sarah Bareilles. I was so happy with that. I was very excited. Coco Goff versus Laura Ziegemund, as you know, was the first match. Novak was second. So it was like, cute, cute, cute. Get to see Miss Goff get to see the ceremony, then go home. Make it an early <laughs> night. We had, you know, really good seats. I I felt so lucky to be able to be there with my mom. Took my mom because you were out doing something else with friends. And Coco got pretty much outplayed in the first set. Laura, everyone knows Laura is a skilled player. She's talented. But a scammer. Yes. This is the part where I'm giving her credit. Because there won't be much of that for the rest. She is an excellent doubles player. She's a major title winner. Her volleying, she just understands like the geometry of the court. And it felt scary for that first set. Because Coco didn't seem to have a ton of answers. The second set opens with this incredibly long game. Many, many deuces. I don't remember how many. You start to see the cracks with Laura. Her service motion is already ridiculous. And... I was noticing it didn't seem like the crowd is really that into it. And the first set of an opening night match on Ash, a lot of people aren't even there yet, right? People are trickling in. The crowd is not very engaged. And it wasn't for that first set. I was on the train while this was going down. And you started to text me being like, oh, here she comes. Here she goes. And so I responded. I said, is she wrapped and strapped? You're like, no, she no, no bandages. No, which is great. Like, I'm glad she's had some very, very serious injuries and ACL tear during her career. Glad she's looking healthy. But the service motion is ridiculous. And I'm kind of like looking around to see, are other people noticing this? Am I being extra touchy? Because she kind of, she holds her arm out straight and she pauses for quite a while before tossing the ball. And she's starting this almost always on zero, on the very last moment of the, the surf clock. And so, okay, you've used the serve clock, but then you have this elaborate service motion 
And I'm not even sure it all counts as the service motion per the rules. Coco was clearly starting to get annoyed. Didn't say a word. Did not say a word until the third set. So you get this very tense game early in the second set. And as soon as any adversity is kind of being thrown Laura's way, in my view, from where I was sitting, the antics get kind of amped up a little bit. She's taking longer. She's clearly agitated. Like, I don't know if she thought she was going to rush through that second set and just be done with it, because she did have Coco's number for a little while. But Coco started to wake up, and she can be a slow starter sometimes, and it became a competitive match. As you saw, she started taking longer, longer on serve. Coco finally complained in the third set. Mariana Veljevic was in the chair, and she hadn't called any time violations until the third set. She calls one. Then, on Coco's serve, Laura just decides to take a little walk just leaves the line and sort of wanders around, and the crowd is really into it at this point. Well, this is where Coco, she says no mas. Well, she had lost right? it already. She was really mad. Sure, but then she goes to Miriam and she says, listen, she can do whatever she wants on her serve, but when it's my serve, that's not all. <laughs> and it was seriously giving tease of Venus Williams in the late 90s at Wimbledon, where she went to the chair yes. umpire and said, he can see it, they can see it, we all can see it, but you can't see it. <laughs> so the crowd had gotten really into it in the second set when they started noticing how long Laura was taking. And they started booing her here and there. The boos got worse in the third set. Then with Coco complaining, they got obviously got dragged into it a lot. But Laura stopped play a few times, like mid-game, to complain to Mariana, and the crowd booed through the whole thing. It's not nice to be booed. Like, that's not a nice feeling, not underestimating that. But in my view, we all know who Laura Siegmund is. Her fellow players have complained about her in the past, a number of different players from different countries. Like, this is not just uh, someone playing under American soil against an American, we know that she does this stuff, right? She has a bag of tricks that she uses. I'm pretty sure I was on Althea Gibson in Charleston watching Naomi Osaka play her, and Naomi was kind of just having to laugh at certain points. Right. Because of what was going on. And what kills me, watching the match is like, she she was, first of all, had control of the match after the first set. She is very skilled, I just don't get the psychology behind it. I don't get why she resorted to that to get... I mean, she knew she would get the crowd against her. And like I said, in the first set, the crowd wasn't engaged at all for anyone. So it's it's not like she could say, oh, well, I might as well lean into it because they already hate me. The crowd was barely paying attention. There is no logic <laughs> behind it. Like, they got mad. <laughs> uh, so, you know, almost a three-hour match. As you saw afterward, Laura gave a tearful press conference talking about how I didn't do anything wrong and they just hate me. They acted so bad toward me. And how can anyone work under these conditions? Excuse me? False. False. Very obviously false. Uh, there's a, a TikTok user named Imani Barberin who... Uh, now, this crossed over to mainstream, to the locals, as you all say. She did a, a short video presenting semiotics theory through the lens of Laura Siegemund's press conference, The White Woman Tears. So some people were mad that she brought race into it or whatever, but... I mean, she was playing a black player, and I guarantee you the majority of the people being mad that race was supposedly being brought into it were not black people. <laughs> no. <laughs> right? So no. this is not, not your moment. And as we know, 
when a black American player is playing, there are a number of dynamics going on at the same time. Part of it is that this is an American and they probably get a disproportionate support. That's not always the case, as we've seen. There's also the case that, you know, this is a phenomenon around the world of white people weaponizing tears to either uh, deflect, deflect from their own culpability uh, in situations right. to then turn the lens onto the victim mm-hmm. and make them <laughs> the victim. Well, right. right? So that she essentially tried to flip this dynamic. And this is what Imani was talking about in her video, that the sign of a white woman crying signifies a certain thing. And when we get to like another level of meaning, it we decoded in a certain way and it didn't match up with what we saw on the court. If you had only seen the press conference, you're probably leaving saying, how could they treat this girl so bad? But that's not what we saw. Anyway, this was also the night of the ceremony honoring 50 years of equal pay at the US Open. Still shocking to me that the US Open has been paying equally since 1973. It took the other majors a long time to catch up. They did the ceremony after they don't do the giant American flag anymore, by the way. Mm. You were worried because you were you found out that day that it was going to be Sarah Bareilles singing. And then you're like, well, I guess we're not getting that because here come the players. Coco's on court right. already. Like, where's Sarah? And then so after that match, I'll let you tell the story. But during that match, you start to see signs of, well, something might be happening. <laughs> okay. So I went to the bathroom and I came back and my mom was like, there's somebody over there. And she's looking over to the right not very far in a corporate box, like to our right, really close. And she wouldn't tell me who it was because she didn't want anyone else around us to know because they did not announce in the stadium. And she's like, and finally she's like, it's Barack Obama. Hello. (laughs) And I I mean, I could not believe it. And she's like, and Michelle was just sitting next to him. Then she walked into the box, like very excited. So when the ceremony started, they brought out Billie Jean King and Eventually, the uh, head of the USTA announced the former first lady of the United States, and people went absolutely insane. I mean, my section was beside themselves. I mean, Oprah thought she had that unlock for the rest of her <laughs> right. life, but there is somebody yes. more popular than Oprah. It was an Oprah-like reception, I will say that. And it was just honestly incredible to see M- Michelle Obama in person. And then Sarah Bareilles came out, sang, of course, Sang down, as she always does. Great job. Only sang brave and then got off because Novak had to come on. I hope she got a bag and a half for that performance. (laughs) She's like, I have to wait how long to sing? I remember listening through uh, Mrs. Obama and Billie Jean's speeches. And we're, we're talking about equal prize money as if it's a given and it's right. And I'm like looking around, you know thinking looking at all these people who probably don't believe in it because we know that to be true just being in the tennis world right i wonder how many people in the stadium were like no women should not get equal prize money and i'm like who did y'all vote for was not there cannot comment on that part (laughs) what i can comment on is that taylor townsend is a star wow those first three days four days on site for me it was so clear. Mm-hmm. She is such a draw. I, I mean, people are so drawn to her. A lot of folks know her story now. She was playing in singles and doubles with Fernandez. And Fernandez is another player, I think, who is popular among fans. My very first match that I went to at the US Open was Townsend versus Gracheva. 
tight first set, followed by a blowout second set. I saw her take down Bia Haddad Maya. That was a raucous atmosphere. Let me tell you, if a Brazilian is playing, there's going to be support. And so on court 17, there was this alternating, almost an equal levels of support for both players. Whereby, let's go Taylor, let's go. And then there'd be some, I assume, what is a traditional Brazilian cheer or chant or song just competing against each mm-hmm. other and then they'll quiet down when they're ready to play and both players were extremely into it but very respectful of each other it was a, a cool viewing experience mm-hmm. i actually never got into court 17 once any match i wanted you to were see, very there close were long ass you were lines. very close mm-hmm. and you decided not to wait any fair longer enough. fair enough <laughs> but court 17 seems like that a U.S. Open international experience that people talk about, mm-hmm. right? Taylor, uh, we watched some of her, I think it was her second round doubles match with Fernandez against a young American team who seemed delightful. They seemed so happy to be there, just smiling through it. And now they're into the quarterfinals after beating Pliskova Vekic. Taylor's also playing mixed doubles with Ben Shelton, who's another player, another American player, another black American player who's taking the tournament by storm. Into the quarterfinals of a slam. Let's talk about the overcrowdedness for a bit. Because (laughs) I was there last year and I was able to move around that site way more easy than this time. Mm. Not even close. For me, Tuesday was the worst of the days. Yes. And partly because the Ash sessions were so flop that you have all these people who would be just happy to camp out on Ash now roaming the grounds trying to get into other courts. I got into court 17 once. I tried many times. Mm. I tried for Kasparud in his first round match. Could not even sniff a whiff. <laughs> sniff a whiff. It was... Uh, I, I don't know. It's just not a good experience. No. To be fighting through all these people to get to a court and then have to line up for multiple changeovers to try and get in. To squeeze up against one smelly person yappa 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 the whole time like it's it's a bit much no organizers really fell down on that i and i know every day every day we're getting these tweets from the official account saying oh my god it's a new record Seventy thousand yesterday 72 today 73 tomorrow and all i'm thinking is we are clearly in the midst of a very big covid surge here yes so much so that players are shitting themselves or, or very nearly. Or very nearly, on court. Whatever this mystery illness is. Because this, they this, can't name it. This viral infection, all these euphemisms that are being used mm. for COVID. Granted, we don't know for sure what it is, right? But no. the, the signs are there. Everywhere you go in New York City, everywhere on site, everybody's coughing. Mm-hmm. You can't sit in one place without somebody coughing or sneezing near you. And nobody is masked on subways. I mean, people are coughing out half a lung, but nobody would ever think to wear a mask unless they were... Uh, forced to by the law, apparently. Yeah, the overcrowding thing. I've seen other people complain about it because I wasn't sure, because it was my first time, I was like, is this just normal? Like, do I just have to accept this, that this is what a major is like? But there were parts on Tuesday afternoon where I was like, I don't, I just want to leave. Like, I don't want to be here. Right, like, we because... paid for these tickets. But I, but the Ash session was two matches long. The second match was cut short. So there is nothing going on in Ash. Armstrong has John Isner. Nobody wants to see that. 
And so the grounds are completely jam-packed. You can barely even walk through them, let alone get on a court. And then come six o'clock, here come the night session folks. Right. So if you haven't camped out somewhere from five o'clock and said, listen, I have my drink, I have my empty bladder, and I'm comfortable here for two to three hours, that might be it. Yeah. Because you're not getting in anywhere unless you're standing in between courts, like standing outside court six or in between courts four and five. It's just not happening. Mm -hmm. And so so for me, the, the lack of comfort was a big problem. Not because this, the oh, well, this is a big tournament you should expect to. No, I experienced differently last year. Lots of people who have been multiple times have said the same. It boils down to incredible greed. Yes, really. because a record attendance is not necessarily a good thing when people are having this kind of experience, right? I, I can't imagine what it's like to go through the grounds as a disabled person. Right. Um, just, just having to fight through crowds. Let's say you're not a wheelchair user, but you have a disability. Like It's, it's going to be very difficult. We also saw many very elderly people being wheeled around throughout mm-hmm. the site. People, like you said, who have invisible disabilities. Mm-hmm. These people are so behind the eight ball, not just because of the overcrowding, but because of all these people lollygagging <laughs> and not paying attention to what they're doing. Like, get off your fucking phone if we're if there's thousands of people trying to leave Armstrong at the same time. But that was a fire hazard. Yeah. I was very surprised with the like the Armstrong exit strategy. There has to be more mm. than two exits, right? But they funneled everybody through two. It was it was I mean, people waited for like 20, 30 minutes just to get out. It is such a dereliction of duty to your social contract in these situations to not pull your weight to try and make this as even a slightly better experience for other people. It's crazy to me. You're talking about like... Lollygaggers. <laughs> yes. Lollygagging was one of your themes this week. You're trying... People are going in all different directions and there's Billy and Mary just standing up there. <laughs> and you're like dodging like six different people from all different directions. Um, this is not okay. It's just not okay. And the, the thing is... And you know what? There were what? so many people you could have easily tripped these people and they would never have known. And no. it would have made you feel better but about it. But you shouldn't do but that. But you shouldn't. I didn't. But it made me <laughs> think really awful things on site. Mm-hmm. Like I understood why people snap. Uh, I understood. Part of... I mean, part of it is when you get this many human beings in one small space, and not, not everybody's going to act how you want, right? And so that's a problem of just organization. It's overcrowded. That's... Uh, an organizer yeah. thing mm-hmm. and then yeah people like if you're in the way like just get out of the way you just move over to the side if you want to text somebody like just know who's around you anyway aside from the overcrowdedness i found the fan experience here really good like they do so many things well it's very expensive of course mm-hmm. like not everybody will ever be able to afford to come here if you want to drink whatever at least you can bring in a bottle and fill up water and you can bring in food and stuff. But there's a lot about the fan experience to really, really like. Despite there being so many thousands of people, I always found somewhere to sit. I really appreciated that. Mm. I always found somewhere to grab a snack or a nice coffee or or something or fill up my water um, to go to the bathroom. I know it's harder for women. There's frequently lines for the women's room. 
Um, the the Amex fan experience area was very cool. You don't have to be an Amex member to go in. It's if you just want to get some air conditioning, that was really nice. They have one of these grab and go Heineken stations. If you're an Amex card holder, they just kind of like zap you and and charge you based on what you're holding when you leave. I'm sure they're grabbing some other confidential information that we've you know signed in fine print. I'm not even into all of that. I just need to be able to quickly get my frozen honeydews and get to another court. <laughs> That's it. That's all yeah. I need. I'll say that uh, during that that wild Tuesday afternoon, I did decide to be patient and wait at court six to get into Dasha Kazatkina and Alicia Parks. I was unsuccessful earlier in the first set I tried to get in. So I went back and honestly, it made my day. Like getting into that court... It changed my entire mood that day. I lucked out, waited in line. Somebody in the front row left, and they pointed me to that seat. And so I just got to sort of look down and see the server, whoever was serving on that side. I love Dasha, as you all know. I think she's iconic. I loved watching Alicia Parks up close. Obviously, she, you know, she has work to do, but she is an electric player to watch. I was at that match in practically the exact same spot, but three rows back. Mm. earlier while you were trying to get in yeah and then i just decided to leave because it was it was just too much a woman behind me spilled her drink on the seat beside me (laughs) splashed me and then she's like oh i'm so sorry i'm like "Mm, well again probably lollygagging (laughs) not paying attention (laughs) and but i did see the first set and i want to say three games of that match and Alicia Parks Esquire played so well (laughs) to start that match. She was doing so well. But as Dasha does, she's going to rope-a-dope you. She's going to give you the rope to then... Right. And that's what happened. Mm -hmm. Alicia looked pristine. She was essentially blasting her off the court. And Dasha just kept doing what she needed to do. Mm Mm-hmm. She was making me nervous in the third set, too. Alicia was fighting hard early in that third set before it turned around for Dasha. There was an older gentleman next to me who kept saying out loud, 66 miles per hour, she's not going to win like that. And, like, at this point, the server is right below us, right? She could probably (laughs) hear us. I'm just like, dude, that's really not very nice. As ever, people and their observations... Riveting. <laughs> Actually, I, it used to bug me, but I I really don't care. Like, the U.S. Open is so loud. And I know that everybody says that, but there is no attempt. I think it would be impossible to try to keep people quiet in any of the big stadiums. And even on the side courts, people just talk out loud. And it doesn't bug me at all anymore. I really don't care. I can tune it out as long as people are not being incredibly offensive or vulgar or something. Mm. I can only stomach it if they're actually still paying attention to the tennis. There are multiple instances where people are taking up prime real estate and not even watching a lick mm. of the tennis. Yeah. But yappa 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 about everything imaginable under the sun, all their family drama. And while that can be entertaining in certain circumstances, like if I'm on the subway and I'm hearing your drama, oh, sure. I feel like I have so That's many That's the time and the place. Mm-hmm. But not while I'm trying to focus on Stan Wawrinka and all that he has to offer. <laughs> Tennis and otherwise. A court six, that court is wild, isn't it? It's So there's like a row, I think, a court's six, five, four. Six is the first mm-hmm. one. As you walk past Arthur Ashe Stadium, going toward the grandstand area. 
and it feels so exposed. There's no barrier or anything. So one side of the court is really just open to a tiny set of seats. And then behind it, one of the main concourses where people walk through next to Ash. And the fountains are just behind that. So it is very loud. There are constantly people moving in your periphery, which always makes me laugh because tennis is so precious about people moving during points, of course, and the quiet. But if you're a player who plays on outside courts, that's something you have to deal with. You have no choice about. And so for any player, just to kind of manage all the chaos that's going around you is really impressive to me. I never smelled the marijuana by court 17 because I (laughs) could not get into that court, really. So I believe her. We believe, Maria Sakari, that there was a dank smell coming from court 17. Well, it's legal in New York City now, mm-hmm. and there's a big park right there. Right. Literally right there. That's so court, it's on the edge of the grounds. It backs up to Corona Park. I'm sure she did smell that. But she also said she wasn't bothered by it. It was just an observation. Yeah. It was very funny, though. The stadiums. Ash. What do you think about Ash? Arthur Ash Stadium. Mm-hmm. Honestly, a lot better than people say it is. Which is what I said last year. Right? First of all, first of all, escalators in a stadium, genius. Oh my god. I'm sure like I'm sure football fans have experienced stadiums with escalators all the time. I haven't except for like indoor ones. Fabulous getting up to the 300s. Very easy. And the escalator ride in the front of Ash, you get to see the whole grounds, you get to see the Unisphere in Corona Park. It's very cool. I loved it. It's also quite easy to exit Arthur Ash, which is yes. not the same for Louis Armstrong. Yeah, yeah. So, Ash, we had um, seats in the 300s for all three days. Like, that was the strategy. Get Guarantee a seat in Ash so that we could go around the grounds, too. And it was it was quite high, but I didn't feel like I couldn't see or couldn't enjoy the tennis. If you're going to fit 24,000 people in a tennis stadium, it's going to be huge, right? It's going to be really big. And the fact that 24,000 people want to buy tickets to tennis is great. So I don't have complaints. I'm sure some engineers could make the argument that it could have been built more intimately. I'm sure it could. That is not my expertise. I I can just say what it felt like while it was there. As always, I would say fewer corporate boxes or no corporate boxes. But unfortunately, they pay the bills sometimes. And they take up a lot of space. They do. And they get a lot of room. It's very sprawled Indeed, That's a problem with pretty much all sports. I found that the Louis Armstrong seats were by far the most comfortable on site. Court 17 has some really comfortable seats along the baselines. But even then, the bleacher seating at most of these outer courts, you, it's, it's still not bad. Mm-hmm. I mean, it puts Berlin to shame. Do you remember how horrible <laughs> the seating was yes, there? Yes, but this is a Grand Slam tournament. The, the bleacher seating is perfectly fine. And I say this as someone with a bad back. Armstrong is fantastic. I absolutely loved Armstrong. Aside from the exiting problems, I just enjoyed watching matches in that stadium. It's huge, and it's actually much bigger than most. I, th- I think we've been to like four Masters 1000 sites, and it's as big or bigger than their center courts. You know, it's huge. Well, yeah, it used to be the center court for a slam. Well, fine. Well, now it's the secondary court. <laughs> it's huge, but it's actually a really good experience to watch a match mm-hmm. there, I think. Two big stories in the first week, I think, outside of the tennis. One being the WTA final situation, which we'll get to later on in the episode. But the other one being that so many people are sick. 
and one of uh, the fallen ones, John McEnroe, was met on social media with a lot of relief that, oh my God, wow. My reaction was, I genuinely hope he's fine. Yes. I, I hope he's okay. Yes. Uh, and I'm grateful that he said so publicly yes. that he had COVID. Mm-hmm. Because I think we probably know at this point that a lot of players and, and people associated with the sport are probably at this event with COVID mm-hmm. all the time and, and events throughout the year with communicable illnesses and aren't saying so publicly. On the plane back to Toronto, sat right in front of us, this mother with her teenage son, he clearly has something. Mm-hmm. Like, will not stop coughing. No mask. No Of course, like, it just... I feel like I'm being gaslit by the world at this point. And I'll talk about this with regard to John Wertheim and John Isner a little bit later. But it does, it's depressing because it feels that we've learned absolutely nothing. Like we went through this for nothing. So we are told that John McEnroe is away from the broadcast because he contracted the virus that causes COVID or some tangential mess what like are we're really at that point where you can't just say okay he has covid covid19 is the virus it's covid19 it's covid it's a coronavirus (laughs) it was the strangest way to word something so i'm then wondering who has john come into contact with because since that news he has all these colleagues for espn i'm still seeing players going and standing up and hugging up uh, commentators after matches, people that clearly have had some contact with him. Mm. There was this exhibition that was played during fan week where Matteo Berrettini and Gabriela Sabatini took the court with McEnroe and Jesse Pagula. Right, and you might be protected because you're outside. Who knows? But obviously, he is staff. Like, he's been in contact with his colleagues indoors at some point. And then in the first few days while we were there... You start hearing about all these mysterious illnesses that, oh, something is going around the locker room. And right. again, this hap- pre-COVID, this happened as well. There, it, It's a great place to get uh, a norovirus or a stomach bug. or Which is you why know, you will never set foot on a cruise ship. <laughs> exactly. Uh, especially after COVID. So again, we we don't know that this is COVID unless somebody tells us. But the fact that a lot of players are sick and and visibly sick with something that you don't want to have that gives me pause if i'm a player i'm not like coco i'm not sharing the locker room i'm not showering in the locker room i'm limiting my exposure as much as possible allegedly brad gilbert advised her to just get in and get out yeah yeah and that's smart so anshabor has been sick with kind of a a flu-like thing uh, Chris Everett called it a, quote, respiratory viral illness, whatever that means. It's clearly more than a cold. She suffered through her first match against Camila Osorio, who could have been an absolute nightmare if you're not feeling well. And Anz has just, she has been suffering this week. No matches under two hours, but she's made it. Every match has been a Houdini act. Every single one. <laughs> yes. Chris Eubanks, this, of course got a lot of attention on court 17 we weren't there but we heard people talking about it it's five all in the fourth set he asked the umpire james kiathavong can i forfeit this game which would have been bonzi's service game 
can I forfeit this game to go to the bathroom right now? And the umpire says, no, you can't do that. You have to wait till a changeover. So what is the alternative here? Poop your pants? Right. And we like, if, if it's that serious that you are willing to forfeit a game, just let them forfeit the game. Right. Because at that point, it clearly wasn't gamesmanship. Like, he needed to leave the court for some reason. We didn't know why. So he tanks Bonzi's service game. He is running off the court before the last ball even drops. And he comes back, gets it to a tie break, and loses in four sets. Dominic Team plays a competitive first set against Ben Shelton. We were excited for that one. We were seated yes. and ready, waiting yes. for the two times I was seated and ready and waiting for a long match. That actually mm-hmm. had the bandwidth to watch these two players go... The full distance. Yeah. And wow. And it was so abrupt. Dominic lost the tie break. And then the first game of the second set, he couldn't do anything. You said it immediately to me. You said he's going to retire. That's not good. He's holding his stomach. He's not moving to serves. It seemed like the umpire made him consult with the physio before retiring because he was ready just to quit. He went straight to the ump. And it's a shame because Dominic really took it to Bublik in the first round. I caught some of that match on grandstand. And, wow, it it felt like he was in pretty good form. Bublik, who is really just not a nice person, it seems. No. Uh, Talking about how, why why is it that he always has to play the handicapped people when they're coming back? The disabled is how it was translated. But he's saying these things in Russian, right? So, anyway, that's, that's something to look forward, well, not look forward to, but keep an eye on the rest of the tournament, how these players pull up, essentially. Yeah, it felt in that first week that everybody was sick. It felt like, to me, the biggest kind of health emergency since all the COVID restrictions were lifted. Because since that happened in tennis, it's been very low-key. We haven't heard the word COVID in quite a while. We sort of just pretended it was totally over. We're now surging in the United States. There's a new variant. Clearly, there's something going on in New York. Where are we in the tournament right now? Right right before we recorded, Coco Goff was in the throes of it with mm-hmm. Wozniacki. A stern test from Caroline. Caroline won the second set, and it was tight in the early in the third, and then Coco ran away with it 6-1. We're in the rounds of 16 on both, uh, uh, both the men's and women's draws. Right, so the top half on the women's draw, those round of 16 matches will all be completed by the end of tonight. Carolina Muhova has already... Punched her ticket through to the quarterfinals. She will play Sorona Kirstea, <laughs> who made her wow. first slam quarterfinal since 2009, after she beat Belinda Bencic. Now, this was a match where I don't even know what to say, like in terms of who we would have wanted to win. I know you have won. You, want, you actually were rooting for Bencic well, as much as you can root for I, her. Rooting would be a bit of an exaggeration, but if there was one time in my life that I wanted Belinda to win it was today. For me, it was who would be more likely to give Mohaba a push in the next round. So I think okay. this is a better result. Uh, Knock on wood. We'll see. Knock on wood. On our last night in New York, Kirstea was beating Elena Rabakina, which obviously upset me a lot if you listen to this podcast. Coco Goff is through, so she will play the winner of Sviantek and Ostapenko tonight. And curiously enough... Ostapenko leads that head-to-head 3-0. Mm-hmm. On the bottom half of the women's draw, Peyton Stearns, she comes through the section where Caroline Garcia was slated to be. One of, you can't even call it the upsets of the first week because mm-hmm. 
Caroline has been done bad. Yeah, Peyton Stearns is 21 years old, American, uh, uh, went to UT Austin. Both of the seeds in her section lost. My sister actually watched Peyton's first round and really enjoyed it. On a, a smaller court, got to sit really up close and just enjoyed the competition. It was her first time to a professional tennis tournament. I've noted that watching Peyton play is giving Van de tease to me. They look very similar in the way they play the mm-hmm. game. Mm-hmm. Look at these women's round of 16, though. It is all seeded players except for two. For Stearns and uh, Wang Xinyu, who lost to Muhava today. It is stacked. Well, this is one of the stories of the first week, I think. Alex Grushkin, I believe, tweeted that on both the men's and women's side, the majority of the remaining players are leading the race to their respective tours Mm -hmm. finals. Something like 11 of 13 on the women's side and then 10 of 13 remaining on the men's side are on that leaderboard. Yes, and early on it felt like this could be another Wimbledon with all of these players getting sick. But there were uh, remarkably few major upsets early on. Peyton Stearns will play Vondrosheva tomorrow. Marketa following up her Wimbledon title with another deep run here again to the second week. Madison Keys against Jessica Pagula. Kind of rude, in my opinion. I know. I don't want to see that there. But also big up to Madison Keys because she has this reputation of being a tremendous underachiever in her career but as it turns out she's been one of the most consistent performers over the last 10 years Mm -hmm. and among americans the second most slam match wins behind venus williams of active players right she just crossed the 100 win mark or reached the 100 win mark in slams across her career then we have on shabur versus zhang chin wen which i think will be really exciting two players i love to watch and tonight, no, tomorrow, Kazakina Sabalenka. We mentioned a few upsets. On the women's side, really, it was Garcia, Sakari, and Krejcikova. And all three, you could make the case for expecting them to lose those matches. Right, right. Sakari was tough. She was really upset after and, and talked about possibly taking a break from tennis, that it's really difficult out there right now. Really felt for her. Like, it's just crappy to see that. My big pick, I have to own this. My big pick, I was certain yes. that Sloane Stevens would beat Beatriz Haradmaya. You are to blame squarely for this. Essentially, I picked the wrong American to beat Bia. Taylor Townsend beat her in the second round. Sloane, uh, you know, I even watching the match, I was like, oh, Sloane can do this. That was one of the first matches we watched at the tournament on Armstrong, I believe. But just did not have the answers in the third set. Bia, my God, hits a heavy ball. Shout out to Elena Svitolina, who was uh, very close to making the second week for the third successive slam since her comeback, but was thwarted by the number three seed in three sets. It took Jesse Pagula in three sets mm-hmm. to stop Elena Svitolina. And then Caroline Wozniacki, what did you think of her run at right. this US Open? I mean, it has to be seen as impressive. I can, I can be generous because Coco beat her. I said, if Caroline beats Coco, I will be a dedicated hater. I Like, I just can't help it. But to see Caroline come back in this kind of shape, playing her game, and there's nothing, like, she didn't change anything revolutionary about her game, but she showed that she can clearly compete with these top 20 women. Jennifer Brady, another one. 
she had no expectations about her returns. She sees it very early in her return to the game, beats the number 24 seed, Lynette, goes to three sets against Wozniacki. If Caroline works on her serve, if she's able to beef it up a little bit or even become more consistent with her first serving, she's going to be a problem for a lot of women still. She is. She showed that this week, and even her volleying has improved. Four Americans were in the round of 16 on both the men's and the women's side. Three of those women were seeded. On the men's side, Carlos Alcaraz is still in the tournament. Big shock. He'll play his round of 16 match against Arnaldi. That guy is going to play Yannick Sinner. Medvedev against Dumanar. Draper, Jack Draper, who is back after spending most of the year off tour because of injury... He's into the fourth round to play Andrei Rublev. On the bottom half, Francis Tiafo just took out Rinki Hichikata in straight sets. Ben Shelton. I feel like this was a bit of a surprise for a lot of folks. <laughs> yeah. Maybe even myself included. But he, but for a blip in that third set where he lost a 4-1 lead, he handled Tommy Paul pretty easily today. Yes. Even in one game, firing two serves, both at 149 miles per hour which were the Why? fastest at this tournament, and then led us to be informed or reminded that the fastest serve in U.S. Open history was Andy Roddick at 152 miles per hour in his title run 20 years ago. I'm still skeptical about the uh, the speedometer. speedometer. Well, yes, because they because say 149, and then in the next game, they clock a Shelton serve at 63 yes, miles like it, an hour. Yes, it malfunctions within the match. So I don't know how scientific it is. It was massive however fast it was for shelton i think as long as people have been excited about him people have also thought he was overrated that they... you said to me this week that he's been he's been lucky he has been i mean he has been a bit lucky he gets dominic team and gets a retirement early in that second round match he had a fairly soft draw at australia of course you still have to beat the people in front of you but again i was thinking like wow i mean good for him i guess that he's caught a few breaks here and there because right. everybody does. Right, but there's nothing lucky about beating Tommy Paul no, the way he did No, that's today. the thing. Like, that's what was surprising is how well he handled that match. And the backhand is looking like less of a weakness. Still not a weapon, mm. but does not look nearly as bad as it did. Yes. And he is actually quite quick around the court. Qualifier Dominic Stricker plays Taylor Fritz. And Borna Goyo plays Novak Djokovic tonight. <laughs> okay, let's start with uh, Stricker. A stricker is 21 years old, from Switzerland, ranked 128 in the world. Obviously, that'll go up a lot. Beats Stefanos Tsitsipas in the second round in five sets. We talked about Stefanos uh, in our preview, saying we... I mean, I kind of expected Brownish to beat him in the first, but essentially that nobody knows what to expect from him right now. We did expect... Novak Djokovic's little section to kind of fall apart a bit because Felix drew Mackie McDonald in the first round, lost that match. The other seed, Serundolo, lost to Vesely. Novak faced the 32 seed in the third round, Laszlo Gera, his countryman. And what we did expect was once he was down two sets to love, that it would be a, a blitz, blitz, blitz yeah. the rest of the way. It was a smooth sailing at that point. So, if you want an Alcaraz-Djokovic final, we are still technically on track for that. Mm. I personally would not bet against it. But something I love that I'm seeing this week is that, first of all, Francis is clearly a massive draw. The USTA believes in him. They've put him on ash a lot. 
I, I mean, he just has charisma and people love watching him. Like people are chattering about him on the ground. So you can hear it. He has uniqueness, he has nerve, and he has the talent. <laughs> right. What I find so encouraging is that Francis is getting through these early round matches easier than he used to. It's just becoming a bit more routine, which is so important. Sure, but there was a worry about his form coming into the tournament because yes. he has not had a good summer. Right. But he gets to the U.S. Open and gets through these early matches with no drama. Sure. It also is perhaps a function of matchup rather than form. And when you get good matchups, sure. even if you would think, well, that person's a tricky player, if that person matches up well for me, and I get a couple of them, then that then plays me into form. Mm-hmm. I think that, like Coco, Francis is, in a way, carrying the torch for American tennis. Not alone, of course. And he's not even the highest-ranked American. But I think that if the tennis leadership could pick somebody, right, it would be him. Because people get excited about him. Taylor Fritz is higher ranked. Tommy Paul can win huge matches. He's been to a major semifinal. But yeah. Francis is like, is their guy no, right now? I you disagree. don't think so? No, because they had many years to make him the guy, and they didn't. Well, now he's winning. Well, now he's winning, but they've clearly invested that capital into Ben Shelton. That's the guy oh, that they okay. want. Okay. I think the two of them together, carrying men's tennis in America would be great for that particular genre. Sure, but ben is not there yet. No, but I'm. Maybe you asked me who is the guy, and I said I think mm. that's the guy that they want. Interesting. They're happy, more than happy to have Francis, but they just lucked into Francis. I don't think they did anything right, to get right. Francis doing this mm-hmm. for them. You know, I just see the court assignments uh, when you're there. You see Francis getting these spots on Ash and Taylor Fritz, who's higher ranked, did not play there because he thinks he's that girl and he's not. Simply put, okay. Like tried to shine on breakpoint, did not. So, all right. Other things of note, I want to point out in this in this men's draw. I'd mentioned the what was it the Shelton team match that I was seated and ready mm-hmm. for a long drawn out thing. I was seated and ready for Murray Dimitrov, mm-hmm. and that was such a dud. It was a miserable viewing experience for any Andy Murray fan. Yeah. And it led to him having to answer a lot of questions in press, which he never really shies away from. But Grigor was fluid. He was firing. He was just gazelling all around that court. And Andy looked as labored as ever. Mm. It was was not good. I found it a bit surprising because Dimitrov really had to fight through a long five-set match in the first set. He was down two sets to love in that first-round match. The other match that I saw that I want to talk about is Tomas... Echeverry mm-hmm. against Stan Wawrinka. The one time that I got in on court 17, watched a 70-minute first set before I was boiling to the point of having to escape. But Stan came out firing a couple of backhand winners right from the jump, bouncing around, accentuating his many positives. And it was just... It, it reminded me that watching Stan Wawrinka play top-flight tennis is one of the best shows in, te- in tennis, period. Mm-hmm. It, it's just unfortunate for him that he's, what, 38 years old now? And what watching him and his subsequent loss, it, it told me that this is one of the big differences between men's and women's tennis. And it has to do when these stars get older. Serena came back from maternity, and she was able to do what she did, to my mind, because it was best of three sets, in mm-hmm. part. Mm-hmm. Stan can come out firing for a set or two, but he does not have five set legs. 
seven times okay. in a slam anymore. And to be clear, Serena did what Serena did because she's Serena. Yeah, of course. Okay. Yeah, I just want to make that clear. No, I think we all, we all acknowledge she wasn't in the best physical shape of her life at that time. Like, that's okay to say. I mean, I'm just saying, you never know. <laughs> oh, I you know. never know when, <laughs> you know, stuff is going to go awry. Mm-hmm. And quickly, some of the other upsets on the men's side. Borna Chorich, I guess you could call that an upset. But in the first round against Sebastian Baez, you could, you could see that coming. Mm-hmm. That's one of the matches I lined up for but couldn't get into where I encountered truly the most militant court supervisor I've ever come in contact with. I love New York. Let me just say that. I love New York. She could have worked for TSA, definitely. It's that <laughs> same vibe, right? She was very organized, throwing people off the stairs. Michael Moe took out Karen Hachanov. Ubi Urkac, he lost in the second round to Jack Draper. Sebastian Korda, first round loss to Fuchovic. Kasper Ruud losing in the second round. You mentioned Felix before. And then the big one, I think the big one, especially because of all the hullabaloo surrounding it, self-created to a large extent, Holger. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about court assignments for a moment. Holger was assigned to court five on his first day. And he tweeted a picture of the grounds, a map of the grounds, and circled the court sarcastically. Here is basically this... The court out in the boondocks. Here's court five, and this might help you find if it. If you want to watch it. First of all, the assignment to court five is hilarious to me. It is legitimately a troll job. He's a number four seed. This okay. court... Wait, no, no, I'm not saying like it's unfair. I'm just... Okay. It was objectively funny to me because there are, there are three very large courts. There's court 17... There's court 10 and 11, which are side courts, but have huge viewing areas. Like, there are a lot of options mm-hmm. at the U.S. Open. A lot of the side courts have quite a bit so of So you're seating. saying it doesn't even have to be Armstrong. <laughs> it was just too funny. Or yeah. Grandstand. It could have been court 11, right? And he'd have more seating. Court 5 is just sandwiched between 4 and 6 and has very little places to sit. I mean, every player has to deal with this. Rublev just, played on that court. Berrettini played on that court. And guess what Rublev did that Rune didn't? He won. Sadly, Berrettini suffered a horrific injury and had to be wheeled off that mm. court. God. It's almost like they assigned Rune there because they knew he would complain. Some people said that they did it because they knew he'd complain and that would give us good that would give us press. <laughs> if you think that any press is good press, then that'll do mm-hmm. it. But if you're gonna complain about being at court five, you have got to win. You have to prevail. And then he loses. And then we get murmurs. That he and Patrick have split again, apparently from Mama. Mama is saying that it's done. And then Patrick makes his own announcement. As he as he will. You knew it was coming. Mm-hmm. So he tweets a day ago, he says, What a ride at Holgaruna 2003! Exclamation. In nine months, winning Paris. Which Paris, sir? <laughs> like, let's be hey, specific. It is in Paris. Okay, but it's let's, a let's be specific. Okay. In nine months, winning Paris, playing final of Monte Carlo and Rome, winning Stockholm and Munich from 30 to number four ATP. Unfortunately, all the stories have to come to an end. I took the utmost pleasure with you and I will always be your supporter. All Glow Academy stays behind you. Good luck, my friend. Now, this is such an exercise in what Patrick does best. Self-branding. Yes. Right? He's saying like, okay, yeah, we're not working together anymore. Y'all have made a big stink about it on your end, but I'm going to come here and tell you what I 
allowed mm-hmm. you to what, achieve. What Patrick what I did. Yeah. What Patrick did not do is have time to tweet about Simona Halep again. Mm. Uh, maybe this is a good time to talk about Simona. She said on social media recently and gave an interview that the decision in her case has been delayed again. She was given the chance to argue her case in June. She's been awaiting a decision. ITIA tells her that it has been delayed once more. Uh, Darren Cahill, John Millman has tweeted about this. Patrick was too busy, so he just retweeted a few things. We have been kind of at a arm's length from this whole scandal because you like to let the anti-doping thing kind of take its track, right? She was given a hearing. We hope it was a fair hearing. The thing is, you should be entitled to a swift, a speedy and swift hearing and with as much transparency as possible. That would be nice. When you're told you'll get a decision on this date, you should get it. And so I totally understand the frustration here. Now, do I think it's like a crusade by the establishment to end Simona Halep's career? No, I do not, because I don't believe there would be any motivation to do that. What would be the benefit of doing that? Like, who is that helping? Do you know how many Romanians support Simona Halep and the tour and show up en masse when she's playing? Do you know how how much traffic she drives online? On the website? (laughs) It's a lot. She was a hugely popular player. So I don't believe that there's this crusade. But I do think that even if she is guilty, which of course is possible, that I I wished it had been handled a bit more quickly and with more information. Right. And this is where Darren is right now, because initially a lot of his social media output was, well, Simona would never do that. I don't believe Simona would ever do that. I believe in her innocence. And it was all toward that end. Mm -hmm. Now, because it's dragged on for so long, a lot of his most recent uh, tweetings were to the effect of, well, you know, regardless of what the outcome is, regardless of what happened, any player in this situation deserves a quick, what's the word? Not response, but wrapping up of the situation. Right. right. Handling of the, of the case. And I have no doubt that there's a lot about this case that we don't know and will never know. We don't know what's going on with the ITIA, what sort of evidence they're sifting through or whatever. Uh, but it is surprising. That it has been pushed back multiple times. And now, here come the PTPA. Here they come. Well, first, John Millman tweeted something about it. And then Ahmad Nasser. What's his title? He's, isn't he the executive director? Something like that. He was a big wig brought in to like run the PTPA or something. Right? Yes, yes. He quote tweets John Millman and says, Agree that it's a disgrace, patently unfair to Simona Halep, her family, team, and fans. However... I am not surprised that the tour hasn't spoken out on this. The tours long ago abdicated their responsibilities towards the players here. This is just one example of why claiming to adequately represent the players and tournaments simultaneously simply does not work. And one reason, here we go, why player leaders decided to create the PTPA in the mold of other sports. Which led me to immediately be like, pull up. Because where were y'all with this crusade defending Simona Halep all this time? Mm -hmm. As somebody asked that. They did. And so here comes Mr. Ahmad to be like, here and here. He pointed to two tweets. Here are the two tweets. Over the last six, seven months. And we retweeted something a few times. Yeah. I mean, guys, 
We've talked about this extensively. Be serious. Nobody's paying us to be the executive director of a PTPA. The tour is abdicating their responsibility is maybe not quite the right framing I would use. I believe that a players union needs to exist. Point blank, period. Let's start there. Maybe the tour is being silent. The the fact that the tour is outsourced anti-doping to this separate agency is actually a good thing. Like, they should not be involved in anti-doping at all because they have a vested interest in the outcome. Now, should a union or an association advocate for players to get a fair hearing at a reasonable time? Yes. Like, players should understand the process, how they will be judged, what sort of evidence they should bring, and when they'll find out. But the tours getting too involved in anti-doping should never happen. Well, part of the problem is... Nobody really knows where to look for for information. Mm-hmm. Who is required to divulge information? Who is ultimately responsible, even within the ITIA, for this? You know, like the timelines, everything just feels muddied. And the only thing we're getting is from Simona and her camp. Right. And the longer it drags on is the more this is going to become an issue. But what I'm not here for is for the PTPA to now try and, once again, tangentially take credit for something that we don't know that they had any input in bringing about Mm. just because they said they did. Switching gears to uh, several high-profile American retirements, it felt like the end of the Trump era over here on, what was it, Tuesday or Wednesday at the U.S. Open? John Isner, Jack Shue, Coco Vandeweghe. Jack and John on the same day in several events. Where was Jill? She was commentating on <laughs> air. John Isner loses to Michael Moe from two sets to love, actually. Yeah. And lost in a final set tie break. Then later that day, he teams up with Jack Shu and loses in doubles. Jack Shu lost in mixed doubles with Coco Goff. Sorry, Coco. You were you caught astray there, but you, but you put made, yourself you made there. that choice. Love you, girl. Thus completing the triple homicide. In one day. One day. Within hours. John got a whole ceremony that I did not watch for supposedly carrying American tennis for the past 15 years. Imagine that. Michael Moe out here tweeting all kind of mess. <sighs> okay. John Wertheim said, I'll bite. So I will also bite. He literally said that. Somebody responded to his tweet and he said, you know, I'll bite. People are enjoying the Isner retirement, right? They're making jokes about his political views and who he seems to be as a person. I've done it. I'm, I own it completely. I believe it should be done <laughs> but john wertheim says quote i'll bite on this can't we honor a thoroughly professional 17-year veteran on his retirement even if his political views aren't in completely alignment with yours that must be a sick yeah year. yeah and the answer is okay so i'm good love let's start with how much hard work is Political views not in complete alignment with yours. How much work is that phrase doing? Because we are post-COVID. We are post-Trump. And we're in a place where we have learned nothing. And Trump shifted the Overton window so radically that we can look at today's Republican Party and say, oh, that's just another opinion. No, Oh, wait, no. That's an opinion that protects and covers and supports neo-Nazis? We have a two-party system. That's just the other viewpoint. What, the, Re- I mean, <laughs> Rebel, the, what's driving this is this idea, this belief, and maybe it's real, 
that John Isner is one of the nicest players on tour. Right. That this gentle giant, this affable guy who has been so nice to everybody on tour, everybody gets along with, he shouldn't be catching these strays just for his political beliefs. Just for, like, and I remember him saying, oh, back in the day he was Republican because he believes in their economic policy. But in the past few years, he's openly supported Kyle Rittenhouse, a young man who brought a semi-automatic weapon to a Black Lives Matter protest and killed a few people, supported him, antagonizes people on Twitter, calling them Corona bros for wearing masks or advocating for any kind of protection against COVID. Things that are life and death issues for people on the other side of his aisle are laughing matches. It's just a joke. It's right? all a joke. There was that deleted tweet a few years ago saying that he agrees with all of Trump's policies, every single one. He deleted that. Don't know why. His continued centering of Justin Gimmelstab, who is a, or should be, a persona non grata in tennis. This really disappointed me from Wertheim. Because I think he knows, or should know, that like being a hard, a far-right Trump supporter is not just holding a political opinion that's different than my own. Like, we can coexist and we're all hunky-dory and cute and whatever. Political opinions are values. They represent who you are as a person. Okay, I'll bite. How much attention is he paying to the minutia of what Isner's actual political beliefs are? Uh, well, and how much of it much. is just, you know, well, oh, there they go trying to cancel somebody again online. You know, <laughs> right. on Twitter, you know, whenever somebody has a difference, difference of opinion. And this is something that public people in tennis, journalists... They get wrapped up in all the time. Mm -hmm. You say one thing out of pocket that you may not necessarily believe. And then here comes the supposed army of, of woke people to come and cancel you. Right? Sure. So maybe it's, maybe it's something along those lines. But at this point, you just don't get that grace. I just, like, how are we here? After four years of Trump, we're just like, oh, that's just another acceptable opinion. Right? Because you, he was, because that guy was nice to me one time. No, but you know what's and you know what is actually an acceptable opinion? Hmm. Being happy that you never have to watch this dude play right. tennis again. Like so why why should I celebrate that? I don't have to. Why should I do that? We are celebrating well, just no, that but he's why retiring. Sh why should I celebrate his career if I don't want to? And so with John Wertheim, who is a journalist but who is also an online personality who's a commentator, I want to know what is what's your role? And this is something we've talked about a lot. What is a reporter's role when they have an active social media personality? Are you still an objective reporter? Are you supposed to be? Is that even desirable? My question to John is like, if, if you feel that we should celebrate John Isner's career, do that. Just do that. Why are you telling us that we have to? Do your job as a reporter and chronicle his career. All right. Now on to this other big issue in week one which incidentally john wortham has been stellar in covering yeah john wortham clearly has a source within the wta he's not the kind of reporter who who breaks something without having some evidence for it the wta is entertaining bids for the the year-end finals they, it's september 3rd it it is Today is September 3rd. And we still don't have a location. <laughs> right. And the season usually ends late October, early November. The bids are from Saudi Arabia, Riyadh, Prague, Czech Republic, Washington, D.C. Allegedly somewhere in Mexico. Monterey, Monterey, Mexico. Wertheim has been covering this uh, almost exclusively 
he said Saudi Arabia has the largest bid, which is allegedly around $15 million, very similar to what Shenzhen was paying in 2019 when Ashbardi won, I believe. Mm -hmm. They're not going back to China for the finals, apparently. I've heard that one of the major sponsors fell through. I'm not sure if that's totally fact-checked, but that's what I've been reading. Supposedly, the Prague bid is slightly less than Saudi Arabia, followed by DC. And again, the big issue with the Prague tournament would be potentially your maybe number one player, definitely number two, Sabalenka, not being allowed in the country. Mm -hmm. Now, what's been reported recently as part of the Prague bid is guaranteeing that the Czech government would allow Russian and Belarusian players in the country. Good. So let's sign that deal. The WTA has received a ton of pushback from the public, from fans, from former players. Martina and Chrissy being very vocal about it. So are they willing to give up this money, potentially back out of future deals with Saudi Arabia in this big push from the Saudi government to bring tennis into the country, to invest in it? Is the WTA going to walk away from that? You kind of boiled it down in the last episode to, well, they're going to take the money. That's, 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 what, that's, what, you, that's what you felt. I was like, well, the Sabalenka thing, it's a temporary problem. Mm. If you're signing or entering into a semi-long-term relationship for this WTA Finals, and please let us not go through this again next year. Right. We would hope that there'd be some resolution to, right. to have this not be the case again, which we saw in just a matter of a week that this stipulation was allegedly negotiated into the the Czech contract. Yes. Were it to happen, right? And so my mind was in the place of, I don't see the two as being the same type of problem. That sports washing and going to Saudi Arabia for this tournament and all that entails with how women are treated, how queer people are treated, that that is on the same level as Sabalenko not being able to play. Also, Mm. Dasha Kazatkina has a deep run in New York, qualifies. She doesn't feel safe to play. She decides not to play. What does that look like for for the WTA, a women's organization founded by lesbians? Not only that, but then you're essentially saying that Sabalenka not being able to play is a more important issue. Mm-hmm. And as we know, like visa things, there are a lot of favors done. Yes. Uh, in many countries with Exceptions. visas. Right? If, they, <laughs> if the Czech Republic is willing to say, okay, we'll give Sabalenka a visa because we want this massive contract to come to us they'll do it governments fudge the rules all the time on immigration that seems more surmountable than the other problems so now we're being told that the wt is leading toward the check bid we're also being told that there's going to be a big summit in london a two-day summit in a few days whereby stakeholders in tennis both on the atp and wta side gaudenzi steve simon tournament director like Everybody who's involved on a non-slam level, essentially, who has a financial stake in tennis, they're going to be meeting, potentially talking about a merger, however many years after Roger Federer sent that tweet. (laughs) Tennis United. The Telegraph reported this as if the sole purpose of this meeting is to merge the tours. I think we're putting the cart before the horse here. Clearly. I'd like, I didn't see a ton of evidence in the story to say like this is definitely because for that to happen that means almost necessarily excluding the ptpa (laughs) at this point well i think is in the atp's interest like they would probably like to i think there are a lot of external forces pushing at both tours 
to maybe finally pull them more together, but not necessarily a merger. Mm -hmm. But we know, we know that the WCA taking private equity money and only putting it into equalizing prize money between the tours, that's a dead end. Yes. That's just money out the door. That's not investment in new revenue. And although it's morally great, it's it's not something that's going to make money. It's simply an expenditure. And whenever stories like this come about, you always get the caveat that, well, you know, this is good in theory, but the male players, they're not going to like it. They're not yep. going to want to give up some money to these inferior, abhorrent tennis players that nobody would care to even watch. Right. Uh, it's, this has been going on for decades. That is, to be clear, that is the holdup. And there is a lot of smoke for the WTA this week about entertaining a bid from Riyadh. Let's remember that the ATP Next Gen has already gone to Saudi Arabia. So if you have an issue with the kingdom of Saudi Arabia, let's start there. People are speculating that this may be a PR move on the part of the WTA, that mm. you break this news of this potential merger, then the smoke gets shared. Yeah, There's yeah. a larger cloud. I do also wonder... Because John clearly had an inside track here. Organizations frequently leak things on purpose. Mm -hmm. Like, I wonder if this was, let's take the temperature. Like, what will people say if we say we're going to go to Saudi Arabia? Yay, Tennis United, <laughs> at all costs. Let's make that happen. Yeah, yeah. Uh, a few quick observations that I wanted to make uh, before we, we signed off. Firstly, Wednesday at the U.S. Open was HBCU Day, which is Historically Black Colleges and Universities. There were a lot of tennis players from black universities. You could see like wearing their t-shirts and stuff. And there were a lot of performances. There was step team, everything in like the main fountain area. Absolutely loved it. They did this. it last year as well. Oh, yeah. Mm -hmm. I loved the centering of, you know, you see Althea Gibson statue there. Arthur Ashe Stadium, obviously. Black American tennis players are just carrying, right? Now. Coco Goff, Francis Tiafo. Taylor Townsend. But we're seeing We've an got... explosion of black mm -hmm. tennis players, period. Because yes. one of the most popular players on site that I saw the first few days was Archer Fis. Yes. We saw his first match against Greaseport. And then I watched him lose to Arnaldi. And being down in that fifth set, I think 4-1, the crowd was entirely behind him. And why? Why? He's French. Why, right, is, why right. is he like... The one that everybody's behind. Is it because he's hot? <laughs> you know, like, he has a, a beautiful game to watch. Like you watch him play and you can tell that this dude has a lot of potential, has serious talent. Mm -hmm. But that dovetails with your larger point that we are seeing just so many black tennis players come to the fore. Mm -hmm. We've I we watched Claire Viangunaway against Daria Saville. Was not pretty. No, but for I mean, her first slam outing. This is how you learn, yeah. right? But she and Robin Montgomery did very well in women's doubles, reaching the third round. And it's bittersweet because Althea, for me, in many ways, Althea built this, and she didn't get to enjoy those those accolades during her life, because the genesis of this is often attributed to Williams onward. Right. But this is Aura Washington. This is Althea Gibson. This is Leslie Allen. This is Zena Garrison. Like Arthur Ashe, obviously. Chanda Rubin. Mal Washington. But to see on HBCU Day, to see so many black tennis players like show out was so cool. So there's 
there's a, a long lineage, but typically not all at once. Mm-hmm. We're seeing so many black players at the same time. They're playing doubles together. They're they're forming this this family on tour. Taylor Townsend is mothering so many people on tour right <laughs> yes. now. She goes and wins a Masters 1000 with Alicia Parks. And you can see her interaction with her after the winning moment. Mm-hmm. She's, I mean, she's coaching her doubles partners. She's mothering in several ways because, first of all, she is mother. Exactly. Period. And then and, now she's with Layla, this girl that I didn't even know who she was. I didn't ever spoken to that girl. I know they're besties. <laughs> right. And so, like, all these black and brown players on tennis, they're, they're, there's this family that's being formed. Mm-hmm. And the other observation is that, as we know, tennis fans can be very gatekeepy. Actually, fans of anything, any fandom can be very gatekeepy. But, like, don't we need people to buy tickets? Don't we need people to want to watch our sport? If I'm sitting near someone and they don't know who Stan Wawrinka is, I do not care. Like, why, why would I think that's disrespectful? They've paid for a ticket. Are you referring to my tweet from yeah, when I was watching that match? Which you you found genuinely hilarious, right? It wasn't disrespectful, though. No, but some people are like, oh, that's so stupid. Like, how yeah. do you not know who this person is? Like, who cares? Who cares? So, so what happened was, <laughs> I was sat on court 17 watching that match, and then this woman looked to be in her 50s with her two teenage daughters came and sat beside me. And they're looking at the honeydew's cup mm-hmm. and on that cup it has the men's and women's champions at the u.s open every year from 1968 and so i was there last year i had the cup that went up to 2022 we now have cups that include sorry it had up to 2021 mm-hmm. and so now we have the cups that include iga and carlos last year right so the match is about to start they're sitting there looking through the names Mom is like, oh, well, this is when I would have started watching tennis, so-and-so winning this year, blah, 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 blah. One of the daughters notes, and quite astutely, that, oh, Djokovic has only won this three times. And I sat there and I smirked. Because <laughs> mm-hmm. it is indeed bit. notable. <laughs> and then, as they're warming up, one of the daughters says, oh, Stan won in, he won in 2016. And the mom's like, no, he didn't, he, he didn't win the US Open. And the daughter's like, Yes, he did, Mom. It says it on the cup. I don't know what to tell you. <laughs> that actually like reminds me so much so of good. my own sister. Like I don't know what to tell you. It's it. It's on the cup. The cup cost like, twenty two dollars. The cup okay? is not gonna lie. It's gonna be correct. But my point in saying, but this, the response to that uh, yeah. tweet was some fandoms, I guess, of Stan. Some fans of Stan were like, "That is so." disrespectful or like americans are so stupid or whatever and fine i'm american i i totally get it you can call us stupid uh fair but when i'm a tennis as long as you are fairly behaved as long as you're not being completely rude and obnoxious i don't care if you know what the hell is going on i don't care if you've ever heard of roger federer or whoever like you're here back to my earlier point Mm -hmm. watching archer feast against greek spore we were sat atop no, we were standing atop court 10, not able to get a seat. We we're just watching. And this guy who's seated, he, the entire time I was there, he was coaching this dude who is not his child. <laughs> I think it was one of those NYU students. Did you see them going around? No, there was like an no. NYU, it may have been like a, a frosh thing or something. I don't know. Okay. What their career goals were. And it was all about finance and like 
tech bro shit. <laughs> and he was not paying any attention to the match. Okay. And all I could hear the entire time for 20 minutes was him giving him stupid advice mm-hmm. about how to be someone who contributes very little to society okay. going forward. Is this going somewhere? Well, I'm pushing, I'm seriously like, I don't really oh, care. Oh. I don't really care about, you know, people talking. Like, there are a lot of annoying people at tennis. Oh, indeed. There is. And the other thing that really pisses me off, and I see it all the time. Every time I'm at tennis, I see it. A man at the tennis with a woman. And without fail, he's mansplaining tennis to this woman. <laughs> yes. Without That's fail. very common. And almost every time, it becomes immediately clear that he don't know what the fuck he's talking mm. about. The confidence. It's just the... I guess it's the confidence that I should feel with male privilege, but I never have. Right, but I have this theory now that a lot of these men went through high school, went through the abhorrent experience Mm -hmm. of having to perform masculinity Mm -hmm. in a gym setting, in a locker room setting. And, you know, they just sat there and read their comic books. And then they go out and they become adult men and they recreate that dynamic in so many ways at tennis matches with women with their sons like they go and they learn a sport and now they're the expert they get to be that person that they weren't in high school Uh, and instead of ending the system of oppression that their role in it they're so eager to pick up the mantle mm -hmm. They reproduce. They reproduce. Have you read Gender Trouble? Because I feel like that's what we're doing here. That's performativity, right? That word has lost its meaning, but to be performative means to be productive. As most academic terms do, they get co-opted. I I was trying to end on a positive note. Okay. Um, You clearly weren't. I will just say I felt so privileged to be able to go to the U.S. Open uh, Thank I, you to everybody who yeah. supported us financially to be able to like, do this. We are so, so grateful. It was an incredible experience. I love New York so much. I haven't been to New York in the summer uh, for quite a while. And just like to ride their public ferries for $4 and see all this amazing stuff. Dollar? Dollar. That was the highlight of my trip. I, a bitch loves a boat. I'll t- I love being well, on a boat. I don't care bitch what it is. certainly do. <laughs> Anyway, thank you, thank you for listening, and thank you to to everyone who contributed to this trip. And thank you to everybody who reached out and that we met in person. A lot of people that we've been interacting with over the years, many years, who've supported us for many, many years, we were finally able to meet. Mm -hmm. So that was an absolute highlight of the trip. And there were some people we couldn't hook up with. I apologize. Next time, definitely. My name is Jonathan. You can find me on Twitter at tennis underscore John. And I'm James, at Elliot JMR. Two L's, two T's. At what point will we stop referring to it as Twitter? Will we oh, ever? no, never. Okay. Well, I'm you just... You can find me on X. And absolutely not. That sounds like a porn site. <laughs> BodyServe stuff you can find at linktree.com slash thebodyserve. If you enjoy the show, please hit us up with a review. Those are always helpful in expanding the reach of the show. Thank you for listening. Till next time. Thank you very much. <laughs>